Roy, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you are an AI connoisseur. You have a very interesting and diverse background. Um, I'd love to hear in your own words, kind of two, three minute intro on, you know, what you're about, what you've been up to. Um, yeah, take it away. Yeah, thank you for uh, hosting. Pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward for our uh, discussion today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, my name is Roy. I'm uh, based uh, out of London, UK, originally from Israel. Um, have been doing uh, AI in the last uh, few years. Um, my background uh, roughly is a PhD in computer vision. Um, did all sorts of research on different topics. Um, and in the last, uh, I guess, six, seven years, I'm doing uh, uh, industry-related AI. Uh, at the moment, I'm part of Tulip as head of AI, where uh, we work a lot of uh, on, on vision applications for manufacturing. Uh, and before Tulip, I had my own uh, company uh, called Beyond Minds, where we were dealing with uh, the productivity and production environment of AI um, the operation cycle of AI um, across different industries. Um, if you want, it falls under the MLOps category. Um, so that's another uh, another angle. But yeah, that's roughly about myself. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, interesting what you say about Tulip as well. It tells you computer vision. Um, I think these kind of things, any, anyone looking from the outside in, right? All of this is a bit of a black box. When you say computer vision to me personally, I immediately think of like autonomous, autonomous vehicles, um, self-driving cars and all of that. But I understand it's a very, very broad kind of um, area with a lot of use cases and applied in a lot of industries. I know one guy, for example, he's using computer vision on an AI um, healthcare startup. Uh, I don't know, Dan Daniel X, new kind of uh, healthcare startup as well. I don't know if that uses computer vision to like kind of map the uh, changes on your body of uh, like kind of some advanced mole mapping technique. Um, so what do you use computer vision for uh, at Tulip? Yeah, so, you know, obviously to, to what you just described, I think AI is not well, well defined, but uh, if if we look at, you know, the general perspective of it, it exists as a NLP form, a natural language processing, more like a chat GPT that I'm sure we will discuss later, but also, uh, you know, computer vision is, is around for, for many, many years. And definitely in the last 10 years, it's uh, reaching a, um, a value point uh, where, you know, hype is, is not uh, around anymore. And uh, we really see... Uh, uh, computer vision applications that are solving real value problems, real business problems and really helping customers. Um, at Tulip specifically, we have uh, recently launched an uh, entire computer vision suite um, that helps frontline operation uh, managers to build uh, uh, applications, to digitalize things, to solve um problems in the shop floor. Uh, we, of course, need to understand a little bit more about what Tulip is, but in general, think about digital applications for manufacturing that are solving problems. And as part of the Tulip platform, we have uh, many uh, computer vision uh, capabilities that can be used for many, many use cases. For example, quality inspection is the most immediate one when you think about vision um in manufacturing but not only uh, not limited to to that uh, only so are you, are you are you basically replacing the human eye in terms of quality and spaces would up until now be done by a human on a production line um and you're basically digitizing all of that process 
Definitely not. Um, so the mentality that I believe in is that AI is not here to replace anyone. It's here to augment people and help them do a better job. Um, so we believe that vision can be another set of eyes, can extract additional information, can help people and workers um, do better job. And when you think about it, 20% of the human population works in manufacturing and building stuff. One out of five people on earth is in manufacturing. Wow, that's a and great stat. We, that's a fantastic stat, yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah so we, we want to help them and, and be more productive, be more efficient, um, do less uh, repetitive tasks, um, be more digitalized, you know, reduce waste. Um, I'm sure you know you you are dealing with startups for uh, for some time, and I'm sure you are uh, familiar with the concept of lean startup. Maybe you even read uh, read a book about lean startup. It has but right. Term- I think it's it's like a, it's like a rite of passage if you're <laughs> kind of getting into the startup ecosystem. Right, exactly. But if you really look at the term lean. Uh, with a capital L, lean comes from manufacturing. Uh, Lean manufacturing was invented uh, a while ago. And it's all about... It's like kind of like Toyota and Kanban and all of this stuff as well, yeah. Exactly, right. It's all all about reducing waste, how you take your funds and use this in a a smart way and improving over over time. And uh, computer vision and AI in, in general can definitely help you practice lean and uh, we Roy, prefer- could could you give us some specific use cases in the manufacturing industry of where computer vision would be used for you know detecting faults or what, what specifically would computer vision be doing and also from from a technical perspective would you need a large data set to train the train these artificial intelligence machines to effectively detect the flaws or whatever exactly it is it's detecting in the manufacturing industry? Yeah, so let's let's tackle uh, question by question. So the first one about use cases in manufacturing, there are so many and, and computer vision in manufacturing exists for, I don't know, 20 years. Um, let's start mm-hmm. with quality inspection. So you want to use a camera to detect errors, defects, defect detection, if you like, uh, on different objects, could be PCB boards, could be metal boards, could be car pieces, could be whenever whatever uh, product you are manufacturing. Right? Quality right, okay. Okay. quality is the most basic uh, uh, KPI manufacturing, alongside yield and productivity. Right? So, so how can you improve quality? You do inline quality test, you do end of line quality test, you do assembly verification, and at each of these steps, there are many, many people that are involved in this process, and you can augment and help them do a better job, uh, less errors, uh, detect more issues with cameras. So that's quality inspection, but that's really one small part of the story. You can use OCR, mm-hmm. digitalize many things. You can, I don't know, uh, read the what invoices. Does, what, does, do, what does OCR stand for? Just for listeners yeah. and myself. I don't, don't yeah. Apolo- apologies, yeah. OCR means object character recognition, which meaning taking an okay. image of a document or uh, uh, something contained text and read that text. So you basically do digitalization of a process. For example, batch verification. So you got a, um, you know, a big shipment from 
supplier of yours and you want to verify that what you got is what you plan to to receive so you take a camera and you read automatically the the label on the product and verify that that was the order from your ERP system. Uh, I see. I just just quickly to ask a quite another question. So before AI was used in this process, how was this previously done? It's still it's not before AI, right? That's still mass majority. I don't know ninety eight percent of the industry. That's what they're using, and pen and paper. People. Oh wow! So you literally have a person who gets these products in, reads each and every single label, makes a note of it on a piece of paper, and then says, "Yeah, we're good to go." Hundred percent, hundred percent. That's manufacturing. Manufacturing is uh, very much still pen and paper. Um, many areas are starting to be more and more digitalized with introduction and more of more systems, but still there is huge human labor involved. Um, maybe someone will, you know, type in into an Excel sheet the document yeah. that he just, you know, got an invoice and he type it into the computer and they have huge Excel mm-hmm. sheets, etc. Um, Man, that's but, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, what? Why is it that this industry is taking so long to adopt technologies which have, I would say, have been existing for now the last five to ten years? Is is it just the case that that's how long it generally takes to? implement new technologies in archaic industries or is the manufacturing industry particularly behind in its technological advancement and development? I, I don't think that that's the case. You know, it could be that manufacturing is a bit more traditional industry, but still, I, I think it's very much similar to other industries. Uh, you still have 20, 30 years legacy system being used in banks. Uh, you still have uh, healthcare that is, you know, very, very much typing into a computer type of uh, industry, etc. cetera. Uh, life science, pharma, oil and gas. Uh, you know, there are many, many industries that are slow. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, uh, something, if you look at Gardner research, that's exactly the hype cycle. When is a, a technology mature enough to be adopted? And I think, you know, going back to this computer vision point, if you look at uh, the 2023 technology radar uh, published from Gartner, I think um, two weeks ago, edge computer vision is just on the bullseye, uh, meaning it's right in the right uh, point to really solve problems. And I think that's that's great. If you think about uh, technologies like ChatGPT and NLP and more, you know, huge language models, that's way into the uh, hype point. Uh, and I think it will still take some time before it, we will see real business value out of it. Yeah. But we're yeah. definitely accelerating uh, in the adoption in in crazy f- phase in this. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Especially with the NLP chat GPT, I think it's it's got so many adopters in such a short space of time. A lot of people argue that this is more of a you know a a benefit of the marketing. It's like a marketing stunt by OpenAI. Well, just quickly for our listeners, I wanted to uh, point out something. You mentioned the term their edge computer vision. So, in case anybody's listening who's not entirely sure what edge computer vision is, it's when the computer vision is being done on the chip itself. And correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, Rowie, but it's done on the chip itself and it doesn't have to go to the centralized server processing. So it's done considerably faster than otherwise. 
Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So edge device could be any any device that is not going to the cloud, right? Instead of doing the processing in the cloud and then there is back and forth of information that need to go, you need to capture an image, send it to the cloud, process it in the cloud and send the prediction back to the edge device. Uh, edge device could be a computer, could be your mobile phone, could be a you know dedicated camera, etc. Um, so that's that's definitely the case. And does this tie in with the whole Internet of Things area of technology? Yeah, for sure. The Internet of Things is big in manufacturing. Um, you know, put aside the terms that you know. I think uh, we are uh, full of hype terms such as Industry 4.0 and uh, in the, you know IIoT, etc. <laughs> put aside yeah. the terms, but what we really see in manufacturing is that. It's a very physical domain. You have so many different um, devices, printers, barcode scanners, um, uh, milling machines, uh, torque guns, uh, heavy machinery. You have many, many physical things. Assembly is physical. Building products is physical. And what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. with digitalization is connect these virtual and physical worlds together. And there is no better sensor to do so uh than a camera i so think that, that's, that's uh, why computer vision is big that's a very interesting yeah. insight it goes back to what we we're saying it's like the the industries are quite resistant to change are typically physical industries right you kind of called out oil and gas you know transportation is another one um even healthcare. all of these things are like um the services are quite physical right when you think about more traditional white collar business you have a significant competitive advantage by having you know up-to-date digitalization and you can move faster and you can get answers to your customers faster i think these some of these industries are so ingrained that it just makes them more resistant to any kind of change but it's very interesting what you said about um kind of ai's giving human human superpowers as opposed to like you know completely ripping up the rule book and replacing their jobs and all of this and i wanted to kind of segue that into autonomous vehicles right so i think you probably saw all of the kind of stuff that came out the fluff pieces kind of end of november last year um around you know october about stuff that kind of you know autonomous vehicles are going nowhere and the kind of market is feeling, you know, not very confident that they're going to see driverless cars in the next five to 10 years. I wanted to hear your take on that because my take is, frankly, we need to think about these things from first principles and think, why do we need autonomous vehicles? It's because we want to save lives, right? It's not so we can just jump to this future of this idyllic kind of everyone just like having a glass of wine at the wheel and just, you know, living in this kind of futuristic world. It should be really about saving lives and kind of coming from that argument that surely we should be trying to use AI to augment the driver and make them a better, um, you know, better driver and kind of reduce the number of crashes and reduce the number of road fatalities. Um, And the ways you can do this is by basically slowly implementing things like ADAS systems and, you know, driver aids and stuff like that using things like computer vision. That's my take on it. I wanted to know if you had a different view. Yeah. I think it's a complex topic, right? Because uh, there was a big promise around autonomous vehicles, and it probably was over-promising, and the reality is more complex. And, um, you know, i always cautious when black and white uh, um, um, uh, mindset is coming, right? Autonomous vehicle is going to, um, you know, replace all cars in five years. And I'm also cautious on the, you know, more current statement, which is 
autonomous vehicle are failing, right? I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. The world is gray and probably we're progressing. We see more and more electrical cars and we see more and more um, um, auxiliary systems, if you want, or whatever uh, uh, it's being termed as, um, um, you know, systems, AI that helps us do a better job. And, uh, you know, connecting that to the, your previous questions about adoption, I think it's all about what are we solving and why it's that important. And in manufacturing, you have two main KPIs, which is yield and quality. And at the moment where you have technology to improve these two measurements, and it's easy to see the value and it's bring you business value, it's easy to adopt, right? And the technology is mature enough. It's, it's almost a philosophical uh, discussion. And I think the same is true probably to, to, any discuss, uh, to any technology. I don't think that AI is unique uh, on that. It's probably the same with software and probably the same with um, any other, I don't know, uh, LiDAR or, or camera-based or vision-based autonomous driving. Yeah, it's interesting insight. It, it just kind of on that point of like LiDAR cameras, uh, I don't know, obviously, how much sight you have into the AV industry, uh, but there's all these competing, you know, technologies, and this is this kind of debate of, you know, I know, I know Tesla got rid of their radar and they just use cameras, and then there's a kind of mobile eye they kind of use a mixture, and then all all of these different companies using different combinations. Um, do you have a viewpoint on kind of why there are so many? Kind of, you know, fundamentally, why there are so many different methods and why people take different stances on it. Is it because the industry is so young and it hasn't had a chance to mature and we haven't had a chance to convert on the right answer? Or is it because you do need some kind of blend that we haven't converted on? Or perhaps even, you know, the AI itself is not mature enough um, and kind of neural networks need to be developed even further, which is an argument that I've seen as well. And we still don't kind of have an understanding enough of the human brain and we need to kind of replicate that to drive because driving is not like an X or Y black and white kind of decision-making process. It requires a lot of abstract thinking, right? It, re it re kind of requires thinking in the moment and responding to threats as they come and being able to interpret different movements rather than just, you know, pattern, recognize an object uh, and match it and give, uh, spit out an answer. So I probably just throw in a lot of information there, but if you could give me your take on any of that. Yeah, when you select a technology, there are pros and cons, and you want to compare different technologies and decide which one is the best. I, that's why we have so many companies with so many different products, and each one of them is trying to differentiate itself. So, of course, there is competition, and this competition um, causes us to advance and create better technology because um, it's a big market with big potential, and... You know, there are many technologies that are compete themselves uh, between each other. And, you know, again, the truth is that probably a combination and sensor, uh, sensor fusion and uh, some kind of, uh, uh, of, of a mix is the right solution. But I think, you know, there are so many cars that are uh, and companies that are going to, to race in this, in this, um, technology race so probably there is room for each one of these uh, amazing products and advancements and uh, I, don't, I don't think it's it's one of these cases where uh, you know the 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 winner takes it all uh, type yeah. of uh, technology race and Roy I had a question if you take a step back and just look at AI 
and the future of AI and where, where it's kind of all going, right? I've heard a lot of people say that AI is only really going to come into full effect and transform the world. I mean, I would argue it's transforming the world already, but it's really going to take its next big step when people start looking at the causality. So instead of just taking vast amounts of data and making decisions based off past trends and finding correlations in that data, because sometimes those correlations, if you take, for example, the human body and you develop an illness, you might find a an innocuous correlation that actually, you know, is 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 just is just a complete act of chance. Like, for example, I'm not sure, like uh, whether you went walking and whether you developed a, an, a, a panic attack that day might be something quite random. But I've heard a lot of people make the argument that the future of AI really is understanding causality. So which features in the data actually had the most impact? And this is the decision that the model is making but this is why it's making that decision because of these these set of features, and this is the cause of the action that's being taken. I want to hear your your thoughts on that and where you see the future of causality of AI being implemented and what's going to come yeah. with that in the future. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I'm a very pragmatic person, and and causality, at least in the business world that I live in, uh, is low value. At the moment, um, I okay. see I see the point. I see why people believe in that. I see the potential, but when I go and try to solve problems, uh, I don't think causality is the next big thing, and I don't right. think that it's uh, it's a right analysis to say that you know AI without causality is not really changing the world, and AI with causality will be you know uh, an event that split the time before and after. I think AI okay. is like software already uh, advancing and implementing in many, many different places. Um, yeah, I gave the manufacturing angle, but if you think about claim assessment in insurance, if you think about models in, uh, in finance, and if you think about predictive maintenance in oil and gas or whatever, there are so many practical here and now applications that bring value to companies and um, and that's you know only in the b2b uh, type of uh, mentality for large organization if you think about our day-to-day lives um, as consumers there are so many ai that is uh, improving our uh, life giving us value um, in, a, in a crazy way okay and just to play devil's advocate then could you think of yeah. a industry or application where you can see causality as being a high value proposition because you've given a couple of examples there where it's a low value proposition such as predictive maintenance which i completely agree you know there are certain telltale factors in heavy duty equipment that when they start the period you know, okay this probably probably needs to be uh renovated or updated but can you think of any specific examples where causality would be of great importance um <clears throat> so you know causality is, is about asking why Right, uh, versus asking what will happen or what is the prediction. And I think that, you know, the very basic idea of AI is taking a piece of data and try to predict something. That piece of data could be a text, voice, image, um, a set of numbers. And when it comes to causality, it's trying to explain why that is the prediction or why that is going to happen and giving explanation or more deeper 
understanding of how the AI got to this decision. Um, mm -hmm. So I think if you if you think about you know root cause analysis, so uh, okay, predictive maintenance, this is going to fail, but why it's going to fail, and how can I improve that? Or that person should not get a loan, uh, and why? And I think risk assessment uh, and uh, loan giving, etc., risk models is a very classical area where causality is a must. Right, it's part of the yeah. regulation or explainability, if you want, um, and that's why this industry went into different type of models and statistical models, and are trying to approach that in a in a different way, um, not just as a black box, and really trying to to dive deep. Uh, so mm, I, I guess yeah. we will see more and more things uh, around that, but um, still, I think it's a it's a small portion of the world. Yeah, you make some really interesting points there. I guess inferring from what you're saying, it's like in situations where you need to give a slightly more detailed analysis and not just an output action there and then in the moment, whenever you want to provide an actual analysis and a future outlook of this is why this happened and this is how you can minimize or maximize this event in the future. I can see why it would be very, very useful there. But I can see why in the here and now when it's like we just need decisions to be made. We have lots of data. Currently, it's being done manually. Let's make a machine learning model do that for us. So Always. I see your point. Yeah. But very, 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 very interesting. It's almost like you need to I, you need to stage it right. You need to focus on bringing up all these kind of industries to scratch before you can start thinking about causality and all of these things. Right? There's there's much lower hanging there's much lower hanging fruit uh, to be addressed first. Yeah, I, sure. I, I think you'll you know this podcast is is for startups, and uh, you know when when you're as an entrepreneur you think about what should be my product and how should I go to the market, etc. Um, to me, causality is a bit um, too much advanced, too much technology, and uh, I'm not sure. You know, you need to come from the from the problem side and from the go-to-market side uh, instead of uh, from the technology side, and 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 that's why I think uh, it's it's not there yet. Um, and uh, you know, we we want to build products that will be that we will be able to sell and bring value to to, yeah. to people and solve problems. So. Uh, that's, that's like, a, that's really like the point. utility, this is a utility early argument, isn't it? It's like if you're building a car, build a skateboard first. Um, you know, if you have a vision of trying to help someone achieve transportation, you should think on like the, the, the easiest scale that you can roll out quickly, which is kind of analogous to getting an MVP out. Um, so yeah, from a startup, I absolutely agree. I'd love to just touch on if you can pivot a bit from kind of more B2B AI applications more to like consumer applications, which you touched on, obviously, you know, ChatGPT, you know, even Jasper AI for kind of since 2019 has been picking up pace and all of these um, things. I want to hear your take on it, but specifically around morality um, and kind of what the ethics of these bots should be, because there's been kind of a lot of noise recently about, um, you know, should these kind of generalistic models be completely unsupervised or, but then obviously people are going to start abusing them and create harmful imagery and kind of uh, libelous content and all of this kind of stuff. Right. Um, so what's your stance on whether these should be like, what kind of level of supervision that these models should have on human input um, and human correction, if you will, uh, whether that leads to biases and whether these biases are a good thing to have in these models. 
That's a, that's a big question, right? Uh, ethics in AI is very important. Ethics in life is very important. Ethics in software is very important. I don't think that AI has a very, very special, um, um, you know, angle to ethics. We need to make sure that we are doing ethics things. And the responsibility for ethics is on companies, is on developers, but it's mainly, mainly, as always, on the individuals that take decisions and how they take decisions and based on what um, and how we use technology and not about technology itself. And uh, I think that's, that's where it lies. And it's important to educate and raise these concerns and make sure that people understand what they're doing with this technology, um, etc. But you cannot win with with education. Uh, you can use with you can win with probably user experience, and make sure that when you, you uh, provide this technology to individual, uh, you provide it with the right disclaimers and make sure that you're uh, doing that in a responsible way. I don't think that. Google search is very much, it, it, it's, it's too different from ChatGPT, frankly. Like it's a, it's a great technology and we can discuss how to use it and how effective it is and why it's such a game changer. And I'm, I'm totally excited about what we're seeing at the moment. But from the ethics perspective, what's the difference? Like you got information, maybe this information is wrong, maybe it's biased. You read something, is it true? Is it fake? Uh, you, you know, in the in the world of uh, um, uh, fake news and uh, so many, um, you know, uh, avatars or whatever that are interrupting and bringing uh, uh, this information. And of course, that is being embedded within language models as well, because they are being fed by human. So uh, if if something is that things like ChatGPT has better uh, uh, probably outperforming individuals in generalizing information into more ethical decisions than anything else. Um, and, you know, it's it's a complex topic. Let's, let's yeah. think about insurance for a second. Um, you know, you want to give someone a, a home insurance and that person is really into lighting candles. Um, and... Of course, he lights in candles every day, so there is high risk for um, for a fire in his house. Should we uh, take more money for his insurance policy, or that will be biased or unethical? So you know, it's it's a, almost a philosophical conversation. Um, we know the same with uh, red cars that are uh, more expensive to insure. It, does that make sense, um, etc. And you know, I think it's 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 on the decision making. I think that companies can do the effort. I think that the, yeah, the two examples you you brought up are somewhat founded in data, um, which is almost like another side argument. But what's interesting is actually with the point you make about Google is because I think pe because people are so used to having you know Google interface and using social media. I think a lot of people are oblivious to the fact that, you know, you are still being, you know, fed biases and controlled, whether that's by the algorithm that kind of pushes up content that you may want to see and reinforces certain biases you may have, or whether that's even Google search, which still runs on a kind of like ad marketplace model, whereas if you're paying 
enough money, you'll get bumped to the top of the search results, regardless of kind of what what view or stance you take. Um, so I think you're absolutely right in saying it's the same problem, just shifted to a to a new context. Yeah, and you know, even even more than that, right? When you're doing a like uh, in your uh, favorite social media, you're training an AI algorithm by that like. And when you are writing a document and writing an article and publish that online, and now when we're, you know, we're recording this podcast, the next language model will use this uh, nonsense that I'm talking here in this podcast to be trained on. So we, we you know, if, if, if the overall population will create good content, smart information, those, these models will be ethical. We need to make sure that the content that we're creating is ethical and the things that we're doing as a society are ethical. Uh, so this, comes, this comes back to your point about the morality and the ethics starting with the individual. If people are moral and ethical, then the data fed into machine learning models is moral and ethical. And then the output of those models will hence also be moral and ethical. Is that the kind of full circle we're coming back to? Yeah, I think if the society is ethical, the language models will be ethical and, and vice versa. And Cause, I cause think that's one, one of the issues, right? Because I remember reading about an AI model being used in the, ju the judicial system to preemptively detain people that were likely to commit crimes based on prior data. And the problem was the data was completely biased, of course, from the last 100, 150 years. I think this was in the United States of America. So yeah, who created the bias, right? Who created the exactly. bias? People created yeah. the bias. But how can we change that? Because if we have had these biases for 100, 150, 200, and even beyond that, ever since we're recording data, that, that amount of time, if we've had these biases altered then, can we realistically change that if we just change our biases in the next one or two years? Surely we need a large, uh, you know, a large sample of data to kind of reprogram the machines with. You know, if, if problems are very, very well defined, like the problem that you mentioned, so uh, a smart data scientist can go and verify and check and look for these biases and make sure that before he's training his models, the data is not biased uh, towards that, that direction. But without um, the business context in this case, it will be very hard to understand that it's really biased. Uh, so again, we need to to try and take ethical decisions um yeah, when when we had uh, uh, you know in my previous company when we were dealing with such use cases we had an ethics committee to look at the models and verify that what we're doing is ethical when dealing with different use cases um i want to recommend by the way uh, if if you know if we're here on on uh, there is audience hearing there is a really good book by um, uh, a very interesting person called uh, Mo Gaudat. He used to be the uh, chief business officer of Google X. He wrote a book called Scary Smart about the ethics side of AI and really how it goes back into individuals. Data scientists, decision makers, companies will not save us from uh, unethical AI, only individuals. And only a, a you know a society movement and a collateral decision.
I think yeah, it's it's very easy to throw the word ethical around. I think it's still still somewhat embedded in human bias, and people have different opinions of what morality is and what ethics are. So it's still very much a human problem. Uh, I think to to slightly go away from that topic, but talk to a, a related topic is kind of restrict restriction of information. So I think an example that's been thrown around recently is kind of ChatGPT saying to you know if you prompt it with certain questions about controversial figures i mean anywhere from kind of hitler to trump and you kind of ask about their opinion a lot of the times it will not give out an answer you know in in the in, at the risk of kind of perpetuating negative or harmful you know content stereotypes whatever it may be um and people have actually spent great deal of time kind of trying to prompt engineer the ai to kind of reveal the secrets and give opinions on it so do you think these kind of things should be restricted like potentially harmful content that you know is perhaps embedded in history or embedded in fact um so factually correct but is not generally ideas that people would want to perpetuate because i think if you start to go down that road you're actually kind of potentially closing off people and future generations to you know learnings from history or information and facts that occur in the world um because the ai is now acting as some kind of filter that says oh you you can show this and you can't show this yeah, I don't. I don't feel I know enough to really give you an educated answer about that. But but just your just your opinion. Yeah. I mean, these these are all opinions yeah. at the end of the day, right? It's a very complex issue. Yeah, my gut feeling is that um, it's very hard to restrict information access in the in the in 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 today's world, right? Um, and you can think about many many examples of bad content that there is on the website on on the web. Uh, that we're trying to restrict, maybe, um, and I, I'm not sure it's it's that easy, and how to do that, and uh, I think still in most social media, uh, data restriction is done manually, even with the most sophisticated AI systems in the big uh, big technology companies, it's still done by by humans. And we're trying to clean the clean the the web from this content. Yeah. Um, if you really want, you will have access to this content very quickly. I think. No, absolutely. And then then just uh, talking about ChatGPT because you said you were you were excited to kind of dig into your opinions on it. I think the. The, the the hype has died down somewhat in terms of like, oh, I could get it to write a script in the style of this and write a play in that. And there's a lot of interesting use cases there. Um, I think personally, one of the most useful cases that Siraj and I have found is the uh, kind of summarization of content, right? So if you have like a long article and you just want to get the key salient points, you want to get the takeaways, um, you kind of want to get insight that you either would have had to spend, you know, an hour reading or you would have to kind of use your own knowledge as well and you can get that in a second. Um, so kind of tying back to this whole automation and giving humans superpower aspect, is that what you see as the main kind of USP and benefit of ChatGPT at the moment or do you see it elsewhere? Not really, not so much kind of what we could do with it in the future, but more so in the here and now, what are the best use, ca use cases for it? I think writing content, um, marketing campaigns, uh, around marketing use cases, I see many, many usability and practical things that we can do. Uh, not sure if they will, um, you know, hold long because at some point everybody will use it. And then again, uh, you know, marketing is a bit of a, um, <clears throat> adversarial fight. So, um, you, you want to differentiate yourself and you have everybody doing the same. So it's a bit hard, but I think definitely there is, there is value there. 
uh, improving our content, improving our writing. Uh, but also, you know, we, we have done recently SQL query. You can uh, around coding and testing. Uh, um, there are many, many cool things that you can do. Uh, Copilot by GitHub is a good example that is, you know, it's very, very similar technology, right? Everybody's talking about ChatGPT, but uh, it's not uh, that it's the only tool in the world. There are many, many uh, similar tools and things that are on the same line of mindset that we already use and see. So I, I think that, uh, you know, you know Coding is definitely a good example uh, um, for that. But also, uh, I don't know, I, I structure a, a document. Uh, I asked ChatGPT to give me the structure of the document. Um, and yeah, I think there is lots of cool things that individual commercial uh, consumers can do on their daily, daily life with tools like ChatGPT. Yeah, it really transforms the workflows of a lot of different industries for sure. I've definitely experienced that with both of those things you just mentioned there, um, writing SQL queries, some PyTests as well, and Python. And yep. uh, I've seen, I actually never heard of GitHub Copilot till ChatGPT came out because a lot of people had mentioned to me that, hey, look, this is very similar to GitHub Copilot actually. And I didn't realize that GitHub were actually released that feature completely for free initially. However, Roy, I had a question for you about, you know, the advent of all these very advanced machine learning AI technologies being released to market, and a lot of them are available for public use. So now you have technology that maybe 10, 15 years ago would have been, you know, unheard of, is at the fingertips of pretty much anybody. So a lot of new aspiring entrepreneurs, budding businesses, are starting to use these technologies in their tech stacks more and more. For example, ChatGPT, now everyone's considering bringing it into their tech stack. So in the future, what do you see as being the main differentiator of a average AI company to a great AI company? If everyone has access yeah. to the same fantastic tools, what's, what's going to be the, the winning factor? In, in order to predict the future, the best way is to look at, uh, at the history. So I spoken think that like, AI spoken like a true data scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, and you know, stand stand off the shoulders of giants. If we Absolutely. if Absolutely. we think about AI, it's basically software. So let's take this conversation twenty years back. Um, and think about software booming about twenty, I don't know, thirty years back. And think about software booming and every uh, company adopting software to uh, transform their business. Um, what's the difference? I think it's the same, right? What makes one software company best and good and the others uh, booming around in uh, dot-com uh, crisis in 2000 and disappearing? Mm -hmm. Value. Value to people, value to business, solving real problems, uh, the business perspective, not the technology perspective. Absolutely. And this intersection between technology and business, which is a core of startup in general and core for companies and core for uh, people that are trying to improve their business with technology, is, is exactly that. And, you know, we at Tulip do that in manufacturing using software and AI 
to transform manufacturing. And there are other companies doing that in different and many, many other uh, industries. Uh, I think ChatGPT is very, very unique uh, in the sense of how many people adopted that in a very, very short time, which is very interesting to see. Um, but okay, things are moving now, you know, with connectivity, with social media, with internet, uh, etc. The phase is maybe different, but the rules remain the same. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I think that's a, that's a big piece of advice for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs out there who are looking to incorporate AI technologies or advanced technologies. Like, start with the problem first. Start with understanding a proper niche, a proper problem, and adding value to an end user. And then, if and only if the AI technology happens to augment that value creation that you intend to make, then use it. Don't just use it for the sake of using it. Yeah, the rule the rules of startups don't change. It's fantastic. It's like it's like AI is just Absolutely. another tool that we can use um, to serve customer needs. It's not like AI is a is a plaster that we can just put over all wounds and say, there you go. Um, I 100%. think definitely, definitely, we're going to see a bubble of startups popping up that really just kind of lean on the AI very heavily. We've been seeing it for decades, frankly. Now it's like even you see these old archaic businesses that you called out at the start will just throw in the words AI and ML like buzzwords and be like, yeah. "Oh yeah, that will that will get us investors or that will get eyeballs on us." When actually there's there's no real substance there, and it's not it's not core to the to the offering. Long comes back yeah, to what yeah. you said at the start. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, let, let me add another, uh, you know, uh, piece, piece of advice on top of what you just um, just said and, and, you know, explain what, what I said. It's not only about solving business. It's also about how you go to the market. So, um, you know, the entrepreneur at home that listen to this podcast while they're um, driving in their car, think about how you're going to sell your product, not only how you're going to uh, solve the problem with a product, because go to market is uh, is probably the biggest and last challenge that you are facing as an entrepreneur. You want to sell your product and sell it massively, um, and definitely problem solving is is helpful when you're trying to solve uh, when you're trying to sell, but it's not that simple. Uh, you want to understand who is the user, how you going to to the market through which channels, uh, uh, how, what type of product it is, etc. Right, we have product-less growth, which is very popular in recent years, but it's becoming harder and harder to sell uh, to succeed with this type of product. So I think it's it's very very meaningful to have this type of of mentality and mindset. Uh, that's that's always an advice that I give to uh, entrepreneur in the beginning, is you know focus on the problem, focus on the value to to the business, but also focus on the on the go to market and how you're going to sell that. You gave an example of of open source, right? And open and you know it's, uh -huh. it's free for use, uh, like OpenAI. I'm wondering, and maybe you know the answer. If OpenAI planned uh, what happened. And what will be the business model of this technology? I bet that they didn't. Mm, in, in, in terms of in terms of what in terms of because I know at the start they wanted to make it non for profit like non profit right, and they've since pivoted. Um, I don't know your take on that or why that happened, uh, but my understanding is it was originally kind of. Not a passion project, but the you know the the typical spiel of oh we want to do it for the good of humanity, um, and we want to we want to 
essentially make sure the AI heads in the right direction because this is a very powerful tool and we need to, you know, make sure that it does the right thing. But even there, it goes back to what we've been saying all this time, which is embedding that is bias of, you know, what is the right thing? What should AI look like? Um, and it being centralized within, you know, traditional companies such as OpenAI that will con continue to consolidate power so long as they have, you know, control over a considerable, considerable market share. Yeah, as always, the driving force is money. That's why we're all here, right? That's probably the reason why 90% of entrepreneurs, um, particularly in their 20s, would start a startup uh, because, you know... Not sure. I not hope sure? not. I hope, hope not. I hope I, I, I tend to be. Yeah. I tend to be fairly cynical um, and just going off data I've seen. People, people want to change the world, yeah, but I think um, there, there's still a significant number of people out there that, you know, particularly get into entrepreneurship because they want to be the they want to get the fundraising and they want to feel, feel fulfilled on a personal level, um, which comes, and, which goes hands in hand with money. Uh, but if I you have a different take on that, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Good chance that these startups will fail. I, yeah. I think that, you know, money is a driving force when you have a very successful product and you decide to pivot from a non-profit organization to go and sell your amazing technology and bring it to the world. That's, that's a good driving force, right? It's a cap capitalist world. But when you take this decision to become an entrepreneur instead of going working for for somewhere uh, for someone, um, I think if you if if that comes from a, a from money mentality, uh, I think it's not strong enough foundation. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah, just just to pick up on what you're saying. Yeah, it's very interesting when you're, when you're doing something where you spotted a problem in the world and as you said, sorted out your go-to-market um, and you've really thought about the problem deeply instead of just doing it for like kind of the money motivation. I think another thing as well is that definitely goes underappreciated, I think particularly by 20-somethings, you know, particularly when you're younger, where you're still trying to figure out your place in the world is is what I'm working on something I'm really passionate about and I can see myself doing it for five to 10 years at the minimum. Um, I think that's very, very hard to do when you're a young person. Uh, I just wanted to see if you kind of mirrored that sentiment and then to add on to that, why did you pick? Um, well, I'd love to hear about this company you started Beyond Minds, if I'm not mistaken, uh, what happened there and why you chose to go down that route. And then kind of following on from the vein of picking something you're passionate about, why did you choose manufacturing over, you know, the other plethora of industries that we've mentioned that kind of are being upended by AI? Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with, you know, passions is, is the driving force. If you get decisions on what to do, passions should drive you. And um, definitely the connection between passions and what you're good at. And if that falls under being an entrepreneur, that's, that's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's how I get, I get decisions. And um, I, I think that's, that's, that's probably the best way, hopefully. <laughs> is, 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 how yeah. did you fall into, is, how, how did you kind of fall into AI as well? Is that you've been, I imagine, a developer, you've been in and around software for most of your life, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, kind of maybe just shed some light onto what the route you took was professionally and how you ended up at Tulip and what kind of what you've learned about yourself along the way as well in terms of what you like and what you're good at. Yeah. Yeah. So, before, before Tulip, I was uh, being, you know, was an entrepreneur for five years. I founded my own company with with uh, with co-founders, and I think it was a great journey. We, you know, 
raised a lot of money and build amazing product and work with, you know, build a great team. And I think it was really, really interesting journey. Uh, you know, at some point I, I may go back and being entrepreneur. I think it's, it's for me, it was very fun and I learned a lot and I work with amazing people and I was able to create and be creative, which is things that I like to do. And many of these passions I find myself doing today at Tulip. I think Tulip is an amazing company with an amazing team. I, I enjoy a lot collaborating and I feel that I'm very, very impactful in my day-to-day -day life. I have the room to create new products and create new features and uh, work with great people. Um, and that's, that's, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm looking in my work environment. Um, and I think uh, the manufacturing sector uh, in, in specific is a very exciting one, uh, which is very high scale. Uh, we touch many of the topics uh, in, in our conversation today, why manufacturing is so unique. And I hope that, uh, you know, what we're building at Tulip will be able to impact uh, many, many companies and people. Do you, think, do you think it's necessary for people to try a lot of things um, and to kind of settle down on what they want? Um, because there's, there's always a trade-off, and we've spoken about this a number of times, a balance between picking up the, the new shiny object and trying out loads of things versus actually sticking with something for a critical mass of time, which sometimes can be, um, sometimes can be, you know, like a few months, uh, sometimes can be a year plus. Um, and then, you know, there's the argument of, did I waste too much time on that? And, you know, should I move on and kind of knowing where to stop and knowing where to jump off? Do you have insight into that and whether you land on the side of try things for as long as they, as long as you can, or to like try loads of things at the start and converge on what you might like, uh, later down the line. Sorry, I do know you have to jump off. We'll, we'll wrap up soon, yeah. Yeah, um, I, th I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good question um, and it really depends on your career path and what you care about as an individual. Um, and and back, you know, back into the, in the previous answer, if you are fulfill your passions and connect that with what you're good at, I think that will bring you value and not everybody need to be entrepreneur. Not everyone need to be a software developer. There are so many exciting things to do in the world. And if you do them from passion, um, you will love what you do. You will get satisfied from what you do. I know it sounds maybe a bit, uh, um, you know, in a dreamy on a cloud somewhere and not practical, but I, I, I you know, that worked for me. Um, um, and, uh, I, I, I did some changes along my career and, you know, when you get decisions, not from the, from, from the right reasons, from, from passions on, um, bringing value to yourself and do be meaningful. Um, I think you usually get the right decisions. And you, you strike me as someone who would know what Ikigai means. Definitely. Um, you're an Ikigai kind of guy. Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, what were, what were the little career changes you made out of interest? Like what were the little tweaks you made? Obviously we all tried to fail. We've, I've tried to fail countless number of times and um, pivoted, you know, my stance on things. Maybe if we had to pick out one thing, is there kind of like something you've done in your career that really like broke your frame or changed your perception on how you see a certain industry or certain practice and kind of where you went from that? 
No, it's a, well, there, there were many. I started my career as a, you know, biomedical engineering. Then I fell in love in computer vision and I did a PhD in computer vision because of that. I was doing all sorts of things in computer vision. Then I became an entrepreneur and, you know, moved a little bit into business. I moved a lot into business. I moved from being a CTO to being a CEO. Today I'm um, you know, dealing more with go-to-market and strategy and product, and who knows what will be next. Um, you know, I think the the world is 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 a very dynamic uh, environment, manufacturing as well, by the way. And when the world is dynamic, you need to adopt. I love that fantastic advice. Sorry, man. We, yeah, we all do need to jump, but Suraj. Any any uh, final questions? It's been a really nice conversation. I really love these ones, Roy, where it's not just, you know, what's your business, you know, how was it growing and this and that, uh, talking like a VC maybe would in a, at a pitch, but more like exploring different topics, exploring industries. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with someone who has so much experience and can provide like a a seasoned angle as opposed to more of like a, an external viewpoint. So that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so right, if you have any final questions, far away. I, well, really, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it, it, echoing James's sentiments, it's great to speak with the sector expert and really enjoyed the conversation about artificial intelligence in particular today with you. Um, no, no final questions from me, but thank you so much for joining us. And it was really fantastic having you on. Yeah, thank you for hosting. It was uh, lovely chatting with you today and hope that the entrepreneurs that are listening will get the right decisions on their career and also on the product that they're building. Absolutely, man. Do you, do you want to finish with any plug, you know, for yourself or something you're working on, newsletter, podcast of your own? Is there anything or? Uh, well, I, I gave so many already. Uh, follow, your, follow your passions. Love it. That is it's such a powerful message and I love it. So thanks for your time, Roy. Take care. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All the best. Yeah. Bye.